Hi, I'm Dr Suzanne Reich, criminologist at the University of Southern Queensland. You are listening to I Am Not My Crime, a podcast featuring courageous people telling you the story about the crimes they have committed and their journey to redemption. I Am Not My Crime has been produced to help you understand that for many people, it is their circumstances that led them down the path to offending behaviour and that what somebody has done in the past is not an indication of who they are today. In today's episode, Ben describes his downward spiral from social drug use, which eventually led to international drug trafficking. I got to a point where I was in a bit of debt and other people knew that. This opportunity, you know, presented itself. Ben sees the opportunity to import a large quantity of drugs, seeing this as a way out of his own situation, but was then arrested upon his return to Australia from his first international drug run. I... I only did it once and was unsuccessful on that. Um, caught the that, first time. Caught the first time, yeah, thank goodness. Ben emphasises that through his time of dealing drugs and his time in prison, he developed a whole range of transferable skills, which shows that when given a second chance, a former inmate can be very valuable to an employer. Working with clients, asking for feedback on the products that you're providing, yeah, sure. um, being able to feed that back up the line. Ben, can you just maybe start by telling us a little bit about um, what happened um, generally with, um, you know, your involvement with crime? Sure. Uh, So for me, it was um, definitely not something that I planned. It's definitely something I fell into. Um, But I found myself uh, at a time in my life where I'd um, got caught up in in drugs Um, I guess leading up to that, I'd, I'd you know, um, moved to a completely different city on my own. For me, it was moving to the big city um, and experiencing everything that that city had to offer. And that was a lot of partying. Um, uh, just through the relationships and the friendships that I had, it just kind of naturally led me down into that path. I mean, I had to make those choices to go with them, but um, that was where I was, you know, connecting with people and, and building relationships and um, and amongst all of those those parties and where was lots of alcohol, but then lots of what was recreational or I guess termed recreational drugs at the time, which I knew was wrong, but we all seemed to be getting away with it. No one was really getting um, in trouble for it, so you just kept going with you know what what was happening at the time. So the more I got involved in the party scene, I think the the worse things got. And I don't think I recognised that at the time. Um, but my um, the use of those recreational drugs moved from the party scene into my daily life, mm. um, and I guess that's probably where I hit the the um, I guess the downward spiral, um, and couldn't really find my way out of it. And with that, I think came a lot of debt, um, and then found myself getting more and more involved in in crime to be able to find a way out. Mm. So when you were saying about um you, you, the people weren't sort of getting in trouble for engaging in this drug-related activity. You're talking about the people that you were associating with at that time? Yeah. Or you're talking in general? And No, a lot of workmates at the, that, that were involved in it um, or friends of, of their friends, um, you know, all these casual acquaintances that you get introduced to. 
Um, so yeah, those, those were probably the, the people that I was hanging out with a lot at the time. And that's what I was, um, I was being introduced to. Um, and even, you know, the way that people ask me, like, how did you get involved in, in dealing drugs? Well, someone asked me if I could get some drugs for them because I knew the contact. So it's kind of like someone just asking a favor because they know that you have that contact to get that product. The product's illegal, but it would be, the, it's no different from anyone else asking you for a favor because, you know, they know that they have, you have that contact and, yeah, and you sure. can get your hands on that product. So, um, so I, did, it, I found it really easy to, to kind of, it just happened in a really organic way. Um, but yeah, I think, um, those are the that's the the way I kind of it was led through relationship and mostly with the people that I worked with. I was working in the hospitality industry and um, there was kind of a, a mantra within that culture that we like to work hard, but we also like to party or play hard as well. What were you charged with? So I was charged with um, importing a prohibited substance. Um, so um, and it was a it was related to under the trafficking. Um, classification. So we were importing um, cocaine from another country um, and bringing it through over Australian borders. So that's that was the charge. I'm really curious um, how people go about importing like from a different country into Australia. Is that easy or is it quite a difficult process to do that? I think it's a, getting um, harder and harder, but I think to the um, the harder it gets, the more creative people are, are becoming with um, finding ways to get it through. Um, so I think that you know supply and demand, the demand is still there for illicit substances, and um, people are trying all sorts of ways to get that through. So um, the way that that um, that we were bringing it in, we were actually carrying it um, internally. So. Um, the, what do you mean by internally? So the the drugs were um, wrapped in th- vacuum sealed and wrapped in three layers of plastic into um, into pellets, um, probably about half the size of your index finger, um, and there were a hundred of these pellets that we actually had to ingest, um, and then um, take some other drugs to kind of make sure that they didn't um, come out in any to mask it or yeah okay yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that was how we were getting through undetected. Um, and then obviously you'd, you'd, there was other processes you had to go through to, um, for it to come out the other side. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and internally, I mean, I know it's, um, it's fairly common. It was, um, very risky, but, um, but to, I think, um, like I said, people are just getting, desperate and really creative for finding solutions to make it happen. So how long or how many trips did you do before you got caught? If it's, I mean, that sounds dangerous and risky and it would take a lot of intestinal fortitude every time to keep stepping on that plane and carrying through with that um, trafficking behaviour. So do you, do you recall how many times you managed to do this successfully? So um, I, I only did it once and was unsuccessful on that. Um, caught the that, first time. Caught the first time. Yeah, thank goodness. How did you get caught? So I was actually travelling with somebody else, um, and they got caught. So and because we were travelling together, um, 
then um, then of course I was I was implicated. So what was it that raised the flag for them that they were trafficking? So the the um, pallets that we had swallowed, there was a, a hundred of them. Um, so the last one I could kind of feel right up um, at the top of my um, uh, top of my chest, right? I could kind of feel it if I touched my throat. Um, which was a struggle to kind of to keep down, especially on a 14-hour flight. Um, so the person that I was traveling with wasn't able to keep all of his down. So um, instead of um, disposing of them, he had placed them in his uh, carry-on that he had actually on the plane. And right. um, when we got to the airport, they were searching everybody that day. I've actually never seen anything like it. But um, but yeah, and um, as soon as we started going through that process, I got some. Had and some did alarm you know bells. he'd put them in his bag? No, not until then. No, no. Let the team down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was just going back to something you said earlier um, when you started telling us a little bit about getting into the drug scene. Like to escalate to that point where you're traveling internationally is mm. pretty big, I would imagine. Mm. Um. And you said, you know, you sort of just fell into it. Can you just sort of like expand on that a little bit? Like how do you kind of, like there must be a chain of decisions that actually led you to being a part of that crowd in the first place. You don't just sort of wake up and walk around the corner in George Street, Sydney and <laughs> fall into a group of people where this has happened. So Absolutely. There, there a bit more context there? Yeah, and I think it's a good question because I didn't really have any context that were involved in criminal activity. So I, I didn't go through that door, if that makes sense. Um, it was definitely through the partying, through the recreational drugs. I mean, through those, you, you get to meet the people that are providing those substances, but then you get to meet, um, I guess, then, you know, the people that they're working for and then sometimes the people that they're working for. Um, and that's when you start to, when I started to get them, you know, introduced to people that are clearly doing this um, as a as a lifestyle, as a, as a full-time gig, that they are heavily involved not just in drugs but in all sorts of other things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I think what can seem really harmless as a way of um, party drugs, um, the more I just kind of allowed myself to keep going with, um, you know, partying myself and using a lot, um, but then also being able to supply it for other people that I know um, yeah, I, I just found myself, um, working with, with guys that, um, you know, were engaged in, in criminal activity as a full-time job. Mm. So from using to trafficking is a bit of a step mm. along the trajectory of drug associated offending. Um, and you're saying that it was one person that knew that you knew a supplier that asked you to get something. That was the first time you'd ever trafficked? In any way, well, that or was, supplied. That was, I guess, supply. Yeah, supply. Yeah, yep. and um, and lots of us were doing that. You know, um, it just kind of became, you just became the person that was that was known for you know being able to get things for people. So from that, did that sort of expand out into a network? Then, like that person then knew someone else who said, "I know someone who could get you drugs" or something like that. Or yeah, how does that? Absolutely. How does that become like more about supplying? than just using. Well, because then I guess the the amount of drugs that you need to get is increasing. So then, you know, I need to 
um, I can't just be talking to this guy anymore. All of a sudden, my order's doubled, so I need to be talking. He introduces me to somebody else. Um, and you just take it on, on blind faith that the person that they're introducing you to is going to be able to, you know, um, uh, you, someone that you're going to be able to trust, um, I, at least on a transactional level, I guess. Um, but, yeah, they you just keep getting introduced to these guys, and I think I got to a point where um, I was in a bit of debt and other people knew that, um, and then the... I think that's pretty usual for being involved in the drug scene, isn't it? Debt and drug I think go hand in hand. Especially if you're using, yeah. you know, and um, probably wasn't in a good state of mind, wasn't in a good um, emotional place, to, you know, wasn't making rational decisions, wasn't making good decisions for my life. Um, and because of the debt, this opportunity, you know, presented itself. I got approached by some of these guys that had been the drugs from and and they said hey you know we understand the, the jam that you're in and we've got a solution you could pay off your debt and earn some money it's going to take two weeks out of your life and you know you'll be back in um you know things will turn around kind of thing so it was more than just the money i think it was uh, a way out for me it was the promise of you know coming out of uh, a pretty dark place um and looking back on it now, you know, I'm smart enough to know now that it wouldn't have. Um, but um, but at the time, you make some pretty emotional decisions based on where you're at in life, and mm. um, that was that was what led me to it. I said. So the solution that was presented to you as a way out became your pathway into something deeper. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So from using to supply. Then to trafficking. Then to trafficking. So how did it escalate from supply to traffic? Was it because you hadn't paid off your debt? Yeah. Yep. Because your usage got more or? Well, a bit of both. I think I'd been, I was using more um, and to, um, you know, still supplying drugs to other people. So, um, so yeah, it was probably a combination of both of those things. But I think, um, yeah, for me, it was, it was, you know, like I said, getting out of that, that place that I'd found myself in it was a quick fix um it was it was definitely a leap i mean but um through a lot of self-talk um just kept telling myself that i haven't been caught so far um or this far you know um i've been able to, to sail through um the way that it has been set up and explained to me seemed like you know something that could be done like it was achievable um so by the bullet and made the decision and away we went. And it left you in the same place again, still drug debt not paid off. Yeah, and now... And busted by the authorities. And now arrested. Mm. What happened then? So we were taken to hospital to um, uh, for them to go through some procedures to actually get the drugs um, for us to pass the drugs. Oh yeah. Um, so we're in hospital Would have been for pleasant? two days. Yeah, it's, um, that was not a fun process. Um, and being guarded to by federal police because we came through um, the airport. It was a it was federal police that had um, that had charged us. So, um, it was actually it was at the hospital in um, in one of the rooms there. We went into a, a private room and um, where one of the the um, federal police officers 
read me those those lines, those famous lines that you see on and hear on TV all the time. The mm-hmm. you know it's not exactly the same as the American way, but it's very similar. And yep. you have the right been to charge with this. Been charged with this. Anything, you, this, say, anything and you say, and it will be held against you. Yeah. Yep. So um, a real a, a defining moment in my life to go. Wow, this is I'm really in a bad place here. Like this is this is um, things are bad. What did that feel like when you heard those words fall on your ears? I think um, just the the gravity of the situation just hit me. I was um, and and hit me pretty hard. I just remember feeling really heavy, um, and really just a mix of shame and disappointment and guilt, um, and yeah, just feeling like oh, this is probably the lowest point I've ever been in my life. That that's what you were feeling, and what were you thinking? Oh, wasn't. I don't really remember what I was thinking. Yeah, too much um, of a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely remember the feeling. Um, but, yeah, n- not too much going on in my head. At that time, I think I was just being, I was just following what I was being told to do. Um, and, you know, you were being ushered into different rooms and being asked questions. And um, I don't think there was much time for me to think. I just had to respond. What was it like being in hospital under police arrest when people would probably see that and look at you and wonder, what did that feel like? It was kind of strange because it was, um, although I'd been formally arrested, I wasn't in a police station or a prison cell. So Did you have handcuffs on? No. Oh, okay. No. Just under guard. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, we were in... Um, a separate, I was in a separate room and had the, the two guards there at all times. And, um, yeah, it, it's a place of care though, you know, where you get looked after and, and I was being looked after by the nursing staff. So there was this mix of, I know that I'm in trouble, but I'm also being cared for at the same time. Yeah, right. So reality kind of was, was taking a while to set in because I didn't really know what was going to happen next either. Um, and what I was being led to. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a very confusing place to be in. So after they'd finished with you at the hospital, would, mm. did you go straight into custody at that point or? Yep, straight to um, a police station for processing. Um, I was a federal prisoner, but I was being looked after by the state police mm-hmm. and going through the, I guess, those um, that system. So, um so, yeah, so we went from there to the police station overnight before we were transported out to the um, maximum security prison. And you'd never been inside a cell before or? No. Had that kind of contact with police before? No, no, definitely not been at that level of of trouble and, and um, found myself asking questions as to like internally just thinking why are they getting me to do this and why are they getting me to do that? So like taking off your belt before you went into the um, the prison cell, taking um, your shoelaces out of your shoes, um, you know, anything that you could use to for either self-harm or to use as a weapon was being taken off you. So um, I know that now, but at the time, you know, you're kind of thinking, why why are you making me taking <laughs> take my shoelaces out of my shoes? Like, um, Were you asking those questions? Sense. Like why do I have to do oh, that no. or just not? No. Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. <laughs> just just go with it. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. 
did you have any idea of what might happen? No, no, no idea of what, of what was going to happen. And I think not until you meet with, uh, you know, legal aid or with lawyers that you begin to get an understanding. I mean, no one really tells you um, as you're moving through the, the court system or, or the, you know, prison system, everyone's just following a process. So even if you have questions, no one can really tell you anything unless you, you know, until you're talking to someone that knows your case quite intimately. So it wasn't until I started talking to lawyers or to legal aid that I really started to understand, um, you know, what I was, what was ahead of me um, and how I could prepare for that and what to expect. And I guess some scenarios that we kind of played out depending on factors taken into consideration by the, the magistrate and, um, you know, how lenient they were being at the moment or at that point in time with the court system and mm. with drug charges. Um, so, yeah, so it was probably through those conversations that I was able to prepare for what was going to come next. And so when you said, they were, apart from the magistrate, did they say anything else about what, what to expect, what would, what's, could possibly happen next? Obviously, that was part of the process, but they would have probably talked to you about what your possible maximum penalty is or... Yeah, so um, I guess what an ideal scenario would be in terms of time. I mean, there was no um, there was no case to plead. There was no... I, mean, I of course, was pleading guilty. Um, we were caught red-handed and, and there was, you know, there was no other avenue for me to go down but, but that route... Um, I was told that because I was young, because it was my first offence, um, that there would be factors taken into consideration for um, determining what my sentence might be um, and that we would hope for, um, you know, a two to three year prison sentence um, and worst case scenario, you know, anything over um, five years. So so they were sure you'd get prison by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. For the amount of, of drugs that we were carrying um, and, uh, yeah, for the, the penalty that was associated with that, um, for the charges brought against us, I think, um, yeah, that there was no other option. Um, and what did you get? So I ended up getting um, seven and a half on uh, as a maximum sentence and four and a half as a, as a non-parole period, so... So when they're saying to you maybe two or three years and then you end up with more than that just as a non-parole period, that's pretty that's pretty steep. It was a, a big jump, but um, I just remember being incredibly relieved when I did get the sentence. Yeah, that's interesting. Why is that? I think because um, I was arrested in February and I was sentenced in December of that year. So even by pleading guilty, I still had nine months of court dates and that was... Um, you know, I had a number of court appearances leading up to that day in December. So after nine months, you kind of just like, I just want to know, you know, yeah. I think when you have um, a job interview, you sometimes have to wait two weeks to find <laughs> out the results. Well, I had to wait nine months to find out what the result, um, you know, that I was getting. So once I got it, I was just, once you know, you're able then to just accept it and then move on and, and kind of plan from there. Okay. Um, so I think I was so desperate to just know what it was um, by that stage that it didn't matter what they were, you know, giving me. Um, at least I had the time set now. I could just 
move on with them and and start serving that time. It had been um, I did get the nine months that I'd served. I did get that backdated. Um, so from the time that I got sentenced, I had roughly nine. Uh, sorry, three years and nine months to go. You said knowing what the decision was meant that you could make plans then for your life. So what kind of plans are you going to make when you're going into prison? That's an interesting comment. Yeah, and I'm already in there, right? So I'm already serving the time and, and amongst the culture and and following, I guess, the, the process that they put you through, which for most um, guys at least that are in there is, um, you know, you're working um, up in the morning and you're off to work and, um, you know, home, uh, home back in um, – in the yard kind of early afternoon to do other activities um, before you're, you know, you're locked up at 3.30 in the afternoon. So, yeah, maximum security, it was 3.30 or around or just after 3. It might have been around 3.15. And when do you get out in the morning? Uh, 7.30, okay. 8 a.m. Yeah. And then, about seven or eight hours out of your cell. Yeah, yeah. And in that time too, they give you a, a short amount of time to be back in the yard and, visit the clinic if you need to get medication or make phone calls or, um, you know, all of that. So we'll go to the gym on occasion if that was, um, if that was an option. So I was already, um, I was already doing that on a daily basis. Um, I think the way that it changed for me after I was sentenced was they reclassify you, your security, um, classification gets looked at. And um, I was moved from maximum security to a medium security. Okay. Um, and that, that goes on um, on behavior, but mostly because they knew the amount of time that I had left to serve. Um, so, um, so again, they have processes depending on how much time you get given. So, And what did that mean for your daily movements, going from maximum to medium security? Any difference then for your daily schedule? or? Yeah, well, you, you go mo- get moved to a, a brand new... Um, center um so or new to me i should say um and uh, because of my age it was a a young offenders prison so any guys aged 18 to 25 will being will often get sent there so um again the the routine was fairly similar it was just in a different place it wasn't um i wasn't there long before they'd um you know found me a job and i could just slip back into a very similar routine. Probably the major difference is instead of being locked up at 3.30 p.m., it um, became more like 6 p.m. Yeah, okay. Um, so you're saying you got a job in prison. What kind of job will you be doing in, be doing in prison? So there are quite a, um, there are quite a few industries. Um, so there are your standard, um, I guess, operations to do with a prison, so working in the kitchen or in a laundry um, or cleaning, um, there's those types of jobs available. But then different um, centres, at least where I was, had different industries set up as a part of their correctional centre. So, um, you know, anything from sheet metal work through to cabinetry, um, powder coating, um, yeah, all sorts of things that, um, that are jobs. And, and it was really just where the demand was um, in those industries at the time. You didn't really get to pick where you wanted to go. So what was your job? So the first one was was cabinetry. Um, so we were making the frames for um, two and three seated couches. Okay. Yeah. So for outside industries that yeah for an outside company right that had a contract that, that contract the yeah. prison okay yep. 
Is that lucrative? Does that make it lucrative for these industries to get uh, prisoners to do? I'd imagine so. Yeah. I mean, I worked my way up to a leading hand in that, um, in that, in the cabinetry shop, and I think the most I was on was eighty-four dollars a week. Okay. Um, which, um, which isn't a lot of money. And for when, how many hours work? Oh, it would be I don't know six or seven hours a day, five days a week. Okay. So, um, not far off full time for eighty four dollars a week. Not far off full time, yeah. What, what could you get to spend that on? So there are are different um, what they call buy ups that you can spend that money on. So um, under their duty of care, they have to provide food for you. But um, on top of that, there are other grocery items and things that you can buy if you wanted to as well. Um, a lot of that money at the time went on cigarettes back when you could smoke in jail. So. Um, yeah, would often um, your first chunk of it would be spent on that, and then whatever you had left over was being spent on um, on luxury items like Tim Tams and tomato <laughs> sauce. <laughs> but yeah, and friends and family can put money into that account as well. So if you had support from the outside, that would um, you know definitely had um, more to spend. But um, I think for for most guys, yeah, you had to you had to earn that money. So the non parole period was four and a half years. Um, is that how long you spent? It is, yep. Or did you spend longer? No, I spent four and a half years. Okay. Yeah. So I actually had a different parole period to what most would have, and this is where the federal offender part comes in. Um, I served what they call a good behavior bond instead of serving parole. Okay. So as much as um, the state looked after me while I was in prison at Corrective Services, I wasn't passed over to the parole board of that state, if that makes sense. Okay. So, um, so. So, how does that, how does that look different, or how is that different than when you're actually serving a good behaviour bond compared to parole? Yeah, yeah, good question. So, um, parole, you would have, um, especially when you first get out, you'd have a parole officer or a place where you'd need to go on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, which all gets determined before you walk out of those doors. So sometimes um, weekly, sometimes fortnightly. And as time goes on, that, that time, the period of time, just the gap grows, if you like. So, um, But there are often um, drug tests, alcohol tests. You have to be um, seen to be actively seeking employment. There can be all sorts of things that they add to, um, I guess, the conditions of your parole before you're released, whereas I didn't have any of that. So basically, good behaviour bond is just be of good behaviour yep. and don't do anything wrong. Which is um, kind of vague if they're not setting the conditions down for what that actually means for them. Yeah. Well, I guess too, though, if I was ever to um, to get myself in trouble again, I'd be going straight back in prison. Sure. So I'd be the bond would be broken. I'd be going back in – well, I'd be back before a judge who would need to determine, determine whether I went back inside – um, or whether, you know, he did exercise, I guess, a, um, a heavier parole period for me. So release day comes around mm. and what happens? Someone there to pick you up or yeah. just don't let the door hit you on the way out? What happens? <laughs> um, my dad came and picked me up actually, which was, um, which was pretty special. What was that like? Yeah, it was, when you... it's, it's pretty surreal actually, because I'd seen so many other guys go before me. And you really look forward to it for them as much as you do for you. You know, it's that it's the thing that we're all looking forward to. So you're able to celebrate with them as they're getting released. But then when your turn comes around, it just 
it feels really surreal. And and as much as you're looking forward to the freedom, you're also saying goodbye to a bunch of, of guys that you've formed really close friendships with. So yeah. there's mixed emotions there in terms of, oh, I don't want to leave you guys, but I, I'm really excited about this new life that I'm about to, to start as well. And, and of course, they want that for you as well. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it was really surreal walking out. Um, and by this stage, I'm in a minimum security prison. So, um, you know, it was really just walking out the back door and right. it was like, you know, <laughs> see you later. Um, but being with dad was, was pretty awesome. And, and, you know, we spent those next few days together, um, which was, um, which was great, was great for me to have that family support to, um, to lean on. Um, cause it was definitely an adjustment period. Did you see your family much while you were in prison? Yeah. They came to visit regularly? Yep, family and um, and friends. I had some friends that, um, you know, that I was close with that I've, I've never seen again. So for whatever reason, they haven't been able to, to deal with it or um, I'm not sure what their reason is, but have just decided, um, you know, to, um, I guess, to stop that contact or we just, you know, that friendship... Um, is over now. So, um, so yeah, there's a real mix of that, but I think, you know, you do find out who your true friends are. Mm. Um, mm. and I was very lucky that I had the family support that I did. Mm. I, I did kind of, um, you know, a few of the guys used to joke about the amount of mail that I used to get. Um, cause getting letters is a pretty special thing yeah, when you're okay. in there. It's not like you can receive phone calls. So, um, yes. getting mail is, um, is a big deal. And, um, and often there would be mail, um, at the office for, for me to, to receive. So, and I became known as the guy that always got mail. So that was a good indication <laughs> of just the support that I had from people, um, yep. on the outside. You still loved anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Friends that used to write, you know, and. And and two, like you know, no one really in the in a digital world, no one really li- writes letters anymore. So yeah, <laughs> for my friends to um to have to do that, but um and two, they were it was an escape, you know, to be able to read about their world, about what was happening with them. Yeah. Um, you know, just allowed you to kind of escape where you were for the moment and kind of be part of their world, and um, yeah, before you had to get on with prison life. But um, but yeah. One of my best friends, actually, she used to write um, the what's hot and what's not list for me <laughs> just to, to keep me up to date with <laughs> what was happening in the outside world. So, um, yeah. That's great. I love that. What's hot, what's not. Um, it's interesting when you talk about being released, you know, how you were saying earlier, just needing to know how long you were going to be in there for or what the outcome was so you could make plans um, when I worked in England, they had a sentence called an indeterminate sentence for the protection of the public. This was for, sent- for prisoners, or sorry, offenders who were prolific repeat offenders, but they weren't committing offences that necessarily attracted life sentences, but they were problematic. So they would send them off for a 99-year term, wow. but they'd give them a tariff. So your tariff might be two and a half years, and at the end of that tariff, as a prisoner, you could apply for your release. And if they rejected that application, you stayed in till the next tariff date. So they could just keep giving you a new tariff date until they decided to release you. So essentially, they could keep you in there for up to 99 years. Wow. So a lot of these prisoners, without the surety of having a release date one day, 
were worse off in some ways than the guys who were lifed off, who mm. still had a release date, even though it might have been 25 years down the track. And the sense of hopelessness that they had during that time and that feeling of why why bother mm. engaging in anything because who knows how long I'll be in here for. Yeah. There was just this, you know, sense of no end to it. So that was really interesting to hear. Like, no, I know I'm going to be sentenced. I just want to know how long for so I can make definite plans and use use that time in some productive way. Yeah, and I think then I, I was unfortunate that I had that end date. A lot of other guys had that end date, but because of the parole, um, you know, the non-parole period, the power was still with the parole board to either grant them parole or, or keep them inside. So they still had hoops to jump through and, and I guess cases to put forward um, in terms of, you know, I am, I'm ready to be released. I'm, I'm ready to, you know, reintegrate back into society. Mm-hmm. Here's how I've changed and here's, you know, how I, um, my life is going to be different and I won't offend again. So um, I definitely had friends that were going through that process and although they had a date, I guess it was a penciled in date. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the times, depending on who you got on, on the parole board on the day, um, you know, if it was not back, then you had a another date set. Let's review it in yes. three months or in six months or maybe in 12 months time um, because we just haven't actually seen enough. We're not convinced. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, very fortunate that I had a date set Um and um, yeah, like you say, you could just work towards that. So you're out. You're spending a few days with Dad. Mm. Um, what what was how was Dad like in that time? And you know, what was those few, first few days of release like? Yeah, I think um, just relief. I guess relief and and quiet celebration. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, processing too. There's processing. You know. Obviously, it was a, a massive um, change and it was a whole new world and I had this, been given a, a new opportunity and, you know, had a new lease on life. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a really happy time. I really enjoyed the time that, you know, that I spent with, with him and being able to share that moment, you know, it was probably not um, a moment that every dad looks forward to in their son's life. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was really grateful that he was there at that time and and two had lots of friends um, and other family members reach out and offer their support um, at that time so yeah those were the the first few days um, and I'd organized with some other family to um, to actually um, to leave where I was and, and travel north and go and, and spend some time with them so um, initially it was going to be six months but I just really needed to get out of where I was. Um, and move to another city. I thought that mm-hmm. was a really good um, plan of attack. Um, so I could move in with some family and um, and I had some other friends um, there as well. So, um, Why was that move important to you? I think I wanted to move away from the, the, um, the scene of the crime, if you like. So mm-hmm. I guess the emotion that was attached with um, with Sydney and, um, you know, the relationships that were there and the things that just reminded me of those times and those relationships. I just didn't want that to affect my life. Um, I kind of wanted to give myself the best possible chance I could to move on um, and start a better life. So um, so the move was, was necessary for me. Yeah. And why, why did you think the move was going to achieve that? 
I didn't know anyone um, <laughs> to to where I was going, and um, you know, the only relationships I had where I was going were really healthy relationships. Sure. Um, and I and just, no one knew you either, or your past. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was a it was a fresh start, um, and to having the the family and the the friends supporting me as I'm embarked on that fresh start as well. So how did you use that fresh start opportunity? Well, I think, you know, the move um, uh, very quickly had um, community and support around me, um, but then thought, well, I, I just need to get on with life. Um, and, you know, like moving to any other city, one of the first things you do is, is find a job. So um, Did you? I did. Yep. Yep. So um, I actually uh, signed up with an employment agency um, who um, would just find me work. So based on the skills, um, you know, that I had um, or my willingness to do anything that they had yep. <laughs> um, on offer, um, you know, they would call and say, hey, we've got this this work, um, you know, it's three, three, um, three nights of of shift work at a plastics factory on the other side of town. Are you interested? I'd be like, absolutely. That's the best offer I've ever had. <laughs> Sign me up. It was the most boring job I've ever done in my life. But um, but it was money and it was, you know, it was part of the fresh start. Yep. I didn't really care how far I had to travel or, or what kind of work I had to do. I was I was really willing to give anything a go, um, anything that was really put in front of me. I thought it was important to had that attitude towards it, um, uh, and yeah, that, that's how it um, that's how it started. So, did they know about your criminal record? The the jobs that I had, the I suppose uh, the employment agency because they were advocating on your behalf. No for starters. A lot of it, I guess, was um, was manual labour and was were probably roles that didn't, um, you know, where the company didn't necessarily need to know. Um, they didn't question the gap in your employment history? No. Okay. No. Interesting. Yeah. And and any of the companies you work for, no one there knew about your criminal record? Well, I guess you because you're on you're there on behalf of the employment agency, that you kind of you've been vetted in a way. Mm. Um so mm. there are no I didn't really have any questions. Yeah. Um once I got into those places. So yeah. So how long how long then were you doing sort of that temp work and like, were you, have you just done that since or have you had a, you know, you've found a career since then or what's, tell us about your career since then and how that's evolved. Yeah. So I went from a, those few kind of odd jobs um, every now and then and, and being all over the place. Um, I was applying for other jobs to um, kind of banking on my customer service background. I'd worked in hospitality, I'd, you know, um, and in retail as well. So um I was using um, that experience to kind of sell myself um, into other roles and um, found myself in a sales role actually soon after um, being in some of those temp roles um, in the fitness industry. Um, it was the, the manager there really, um, we got on really well and she just, she gave me a shot. Um, I'm sure she, you know, probably came across other people that were more qualified or had experience in the industry but um for whatever reason she saw something in me and decided to give me a go um and to um because of my employment in prison I was able to 
kind of, I guess, my resume didn't look like it was, you know, had that many gaps in it. Um, so again, there were no kind of questions as to, you know, what I'd done in the past. I think she was just keen to know that I could work well with customers and with clients and, um, you know, being able to, to learn and grow as I moved through the role. So, so I was there for about 12 months. Um, that was probably my first, what I call my first proper job. Um, but yeah, real really grateful for um you know the stepping stone that that was to give me confidence um mm. and uh you know give me support from a, a really great manager or, or leader at the time as well a 12 months and then yep so again applied for a, another role it was a customer service role um but um it was in the finance industry sure. so they were going to ask questions um, okay. You know, how did that go down? Well, like, um, have you ever been convicted of a, a criminal offence that would bring the company into disrepute? Um, so I had some conditions to the question. I did have some conditions. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't a flat out. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Um, it was. Um, you know, it, it definitely had some conditions. Well, I saw conditions around it. So. Um, what do you think they meant by that, though? That would bring the company into disrepute. So I think if if it was a crime related to the the finance industry, like if it was like fraud, fraud or, or an embezzlement sure. or something along those lines, obviously that's not going to look good mm-hmm. um, for for their reputation. So um, I actually sought some advice from um, from an HR manager, okay, as to how I could answer that question, um, and um, and we were fairly confident that I could say no to that question. Um, the crime that I'd been convicted of wasn't going to bring the company into disrepute. We've obviously spoken earlier, and this is the job that you kept for quite a long time mm. and climbed the ladder a bit yeah. in this particular financial institution. One day you had you felt a bit convicted about the fact that your manager didn't know about your past mm. and you decided to go and talk to them. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think I'd started to move into positions where um, I was becoming um, a little bit more visible, but also I was being entrusted with a lot more and given more responsibility, which I was really grateful for. Um, I'd worked hard for it, but at the same time, I also felt like um, you know people were still giving me opportunity or or um, you know um, giving me a shot. So I think it got to a point with one of them where I just I was so grateful for that, but um, I was playing through some worst case scenarios in my head, and because she was such a fantastic leader, I didn't want her to to be blindsided by anything. So I guess to protect the relationship that I had with her, um, I just wanted to be really open and honest about um, what had gone on. So. We sat down and I was nervous as all hell and, you know, thought, how's it? You're nervous now. Are you about to tell us? <laughs> How's she going to respond to this? And um, and she was excellent, you know. Um, it's like she didn't even flinch. She was just like, okay. I think she said something along the lines of, like, is that it? Like, is that it? I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> that, that's, that's what happened. And she's like, okay. All right, well, that doesn't change anything, like as far as I'm concerned, and just felt the weight of it just kind of fall off my shoulders. Yep. It's just such an amazing reaction to what I thought was going to be a really big deal. Yeah. But, um, you know, as much as it, I'd probably built it up in my own mind, 
I think there are people out there that would take it as a big deal and, you know, full credit to her for the way that she handled that. And the way. Why do you think she reacted like that? I think she probably saw, um, you know, my physical and emotional state, um, my nervousness in in wanting to tell her. Um, But how much of a big deal it must have been for me to to tell her that. So, um, you know. As in the courage it took to yeah be really vulnerable and yeah, transparent definitely. about your past yeah yeah and i think you know she wanted to to honor that with not making it a big deal and and responding in a really beautiful way and then ongoing like the the treatment you know the way that she treated me in the workplace and the opportunities that um that were either was or wasn't given mm. weren't um you know as a result of what i'd i'd spoken to her about in terms it's quite of quite humbling past. really isn't it yeah I'm, I'm, again, I'm very fortunate to have landed, um, you know, the, the leaders that, that have given me those opportunities and have kind of have just really encouraged me because um, it, it could have been um, a very different scenario. Mm. And something else that um, we'd also spoken about a little bit earlier in our preliminary conversation was an interesting perspective that you shared with me about your skills that you had developed supplying drugs in terms of sales and customer service (laughs) and how they're transferable to other jobs, you know, that are obviously more socially acceptable. I think that's a really interesting way to think about a positive um, spin on a criminal past. I'm just wondering how you would help employers to get their head around or how to how they might process that kind of information in terms of what value they can take for that in their own business i think i had the i had gained some experience in the industries um, around customer service before i went in um and I think we went into drug selling. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Right. Before okay, I went yeah. into that um, yeah. industry, but um, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, working with, working with clients, um, understanding the, the supply or understanding the demand and being able to supply that, um, asking for feedback on the products that you're providing, yeah, sure. um, being able to feed that back up the line, um, influencing negotiation skills, like all of this, all of those skills, you know, we're, we're definitely part of um, selling drugs, dealing drugs, um, and, uh, um, you know, some of the skills you get to practice when you're involved and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, just recently I've been thinking about about how we, how we make that, um, or I guess how guys um, that are inside, guys and girls in, that are inside that can, um, I guess, be aware of that or even acknowledge the skills that they've developed or, or know that they are skills that are transferable, um, you know, into other roles. Because I just think that, you know, they think because of the stigma attached to what they were doing, um, because it's a life of crime, because it's criminal activity, because it has all these other labels on it, that there aren't skills, you know, involved or a part of what they've done, but they absolutely have some great skills. Mm. Um so what I'm hearing you say is running an illegitimate business and running a legitimate business takes the same skills. Absolutely. What's more important 
is that you're not offending anymore. Yeah, that's right. Rather than where you got the skills from. Or you're, or you're supplying a product that's legal and not illegal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the product changes, but the skills and the and the conversations and everything else, um, it's it's all still the same. And two, some of the, I guess, competencies and skills that I've been exposed to in the corporate world, um, you know, things around, skills around innovation. Um, I'm seeing some of the things that I was exposed to inside um, that would be linked to innovation um, were, were crazy. The way that guys would make tattoo guns out of a motor that they pulled out of a, of a disc min, so like a CD, oh, yes, yes. CD Walkman that yes. pulled the motor out of that um, and used the ink from a pen and used you know different tools that were kind of at their disposal to pull together a, a tattoo gun to be able mm. to do you know, in-house tattoos, it's just, um, that, that blows my mind. That, that, that level of innovation would be, um, you know, corporates would pay big money to have that sort of inf- innovation amongst their, their people or, or to bring it in for certain projects. So, yeah, plenty of other examples of, yeah, where guys, where, where they don't have it, they'll find ways to, to create it. Desperate times call for desperate measures. That's right. Just the creativity and innovation, you know, the the lines that we used to create, the threads from the blankets that we'd been given that you'd attach to a, a plastic knife and slide it under your door through to the across the corridor to the cell that's across from you and they would attach whatever you needed, matches or um, or butter or <laughs> courier or sugar courier yeah they would attach it to the string and slide it back to you and you know, you'd kind of pull it back so even being locked up at night you know you still had access to um to resources if you didn't have it available in your cell you can kind of yell out to someone next door who probably yelled out to the guy next door to him yep. and eventually you know so it really unlocked that think outside the box way of solving problems. Absolutely. And, and you could take that with you into your workplace. Yeah. Yeah. So apart from work, obviously employment has been not quite as difficult for you to find as what some people may uh, with having come from prison or having a criminal record. Would you say that that has helped you in reintegrating back into society and staying offence-free, staying away from the drug scene? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that's been a, a major part for me, I think, um, you know, for me to to be focused on, um, on my work and doing a really good job and then seeing the opportunities that were, um, you know, in front of me to be able to, to move forward and, and to claim promotions or work on different projects um, you know, that was, um, that was a, a big part of my focus for a number of years. And it's been, you know, over 10 years since my release date. And, and I look back and, and think, you know, for, for that to have been part of my plan when I got out to be my focus, it just, you know, the places that it led me were, um, were pretty incredible. Mm. I remember sitting in some of the, um, you know, meeting rooms with, corporates um you know people that get paid a hell of a lot more money than i do and um but in in positions of power and influence you know too not just for the company but in society and just thinking to myself how the hell did i get here yeah <laughs> you know so um it's uh, it's pretty special but yeah 
it's been a, a big part of of keeping me on the straight and narrow and and building a whole new life for myself and and two out of those relationships that um you know would definitely causing more harm than good so an employer's making a decision then to hire somebody and they're down to the last two exactly the same one has a criminal record one doesn't mm. How do you encourage them to hire the guy with the criminal record? Why should they? I would say that the guy with the criminal record wants it more. Wants. <laughs> wants the job yep. more, probably a little bit more desperate. And um, and in that way too would be, um, you know, really a- appreciative of the job. It would mean a lot to them getting it. And two, you know, it's more than just giving a guy um, a chance. It's keeping a guy out of a... Of a, of a different life or of a different path um, that could lead him back into reoffending. I think, you know, people will find um, a way to survive any way that they can. And if that's not through meaningful employment, they'll find a way to get that money. Um, and if that means that they go back to a life of crime, if that's where their connections are or where their opportunities are, then that's what they'll go back to because um, they see it as survival. So, yeah, I would say to anyone that's looking at um, employing anyone with a criminal history that um, to give them a go. I think it's, um, it's not just a great thing to do. Um, I think, you know, you'll be, you'll be changing a life and then a, the ripple effects that, that come from that are huge. Yeah. So not actually just giving someone a job, you're actually helping to possibly reduce the risk of reoffending for somebody. Absolutely. Yep. Which, is, which is not going to be necessarily a risk for the other person. So it's got a more utilitarian purpose, you know, everybody wins. Absolutely. And the benefits that that has to the people around that person and then society, um, you know, I think um, is huge and, and can't be underestimated. What are those benefits, do you think? Well, I think the cost to society, like it costs a hell of a lot to keep guys, um, you know, locked up and, and um, the cost to the... The court system and and um, and all of that sort of thing. So that's that's one thing that um, that I'd say. But then you know a lot of these guys, uh, a lot of the guys that I met inside anyway would have kids. Um, you know, for those those kids to see dad um, on a on a different path. Um, you know, providing for them and and um, you know being the father figure that they need. I think it's going to have a huge impact on on their lives and um, and on society as well. They're pretty big benefits. They're not just small things, you know. They, because that has implications then for how those children grow up, and then you know what they've been modelled to them, and you know, more is caught than taught. That's right. <laughs> that's what they're watching. That's probably what they'll do. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've I've met guys that um, that didn't. Uh, we have a similar story in terms of there was a period in our lives where you know we both did time. But our lives leading up to that were very different, you know. I know um, of one guy that whose whose parents were, um, you know, both addicted to drugs, had family members that were involved in crime. And when I look in at his life and hear his story, I just think, what chance did you have? Mm. You know, mm. what what hope was there for you in growing up in an environment like that? Like, of course, that's where you were going to end up. Mm. Um, whereas it was a very different story for me. That was. Um, I had a very different um, upbringing or story before that that part of my life. So, mm. um, yeah, for us to change the story for some of these guys, 
for us to change that part of the story and and um and then see it changed for their kids and their kids after that. Mm. I think um that's the bigger picture that we need to keep in view. Besides a job, what else has kept you on the straight and narrow? Um, I think community for me has been a really big thing. So um, being involved in the community and um, I do a lot with uh, with a local charity that's um, that's not far from my house now. So okay. um, volunteering there quite a bit and um, and have been an advisory to the to the board to the management committee of that um, of that charity as well. So. Yep. Um, being involved there. Um, I think the relationships that I've built um, with, um, you know, the new relationships that I've built um, have been really intentional about building relationships with people that are, you know, um, are living healthy lifestyles as opposed to um, non-healthy lifestyles. And I think faith has been a big part of my journey. So having a faith and, um, you know, Having a church community around me and and um, you know believing in in um, in promises that you know that we're taught through the Bible and and that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, having a relationship with God and and um, having um, you know being able to to pray, which I guess is a form of meditation and mm. and um, yeah, that's definitely definitely helped the spiritual health, my spiritual health and my mental health as well. Um, and then the only thing I'd add apart from that is all of the the physical parts of it. So the attending the gym and healthy eating and all that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Um, you know, my relationship with alcohol too, assessing that. I was drinking when I first got out, but then, you know, um there were were nights where that got a little bit too out of control and um, you know, I saw the pathway that that could kind of lead down. So cool. reassessing my relationship with alcohol and pulling that right back to, um, you know, no more drinking during the week. And if I do go out um, on weekends, it's, you know, it's um, at a tolerable level or, or having one or two instead of letting it escalate to many more. So, um, yeah, I think they've, um, they've all contributed to where I am now and um, being in a much more healthy state. When I asked you if you'd like to be involved in this podcast, you didn't really think twice. You kind of jumped at the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, why why were you so keen to tell your story today? Oh, I think any opportunity to talk about uh, opportunities for, for people to break down um, stigmas or to change people's thinking about, you know, what an ex-offender might look like, um, I'm always up for that chat. I think there's... Um, <laughs> There's plenty of conversations to be had around um, how we can do it better, how we can, um, you know, help people, help reintegrate these these people that are getting out back into society so that they don't re- offend again, so that, you know, they have a better chance at life, um, so that doesn't cost society so much to keep building prison after prison because we have to, um, you know, we keep locking people up. Um, yeah, any opportunity to, to help um, have this conversation um, you know, I'll definitely put my hand up. So, yeah. so there's not only sort of charitable benefits in terms of helping somebody, but there's also real economical benefits to society. Yeah, definitely. So. Yep. Yeah. I just recently was, you know, reading about you know the impact that um, of you know the the prison growth in Australia and how much it's costing. It just it blows my mind. It's in the billions. 
you know i just think that that's a a huge expense and we can actually do something about it um not just to drop the cost but i think the the people impact and the lives that will be counted um you know for the better i think is the is going to be the the better result um so yeah well thanks ben that's been an absolute joy to hear your story and you know just um listen to you just so honestly tell us about you know your time in prison and how you how you got there and why you got there and but more so that encouraging um after after the after the fact story mm. and how you know life's changed for you and um not only how it's changed for you but how you're making a really positive difference for society in in the things that you do so Thanks for your encouraging story and for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are you curious about why people behave in criminal ways? Maybe you would enjoy a fascinating career in the criminal justice system or one of the many associated agencies, working with people who have committed crime or been a victim of crime. Why not get a head start with your studies in criminology and criminal justice here at the University of Southern Queensland? To find out more, go to usq.edu.au slash Bella. That's B-E-L-A, then click on Law and Criminology. In this episode, you heard Ben talk about a number of factors that were important for his reintegration back into society following his time of incarceration. Research tells us that although the public support the use of punishment as a response to crime, they also expect that those who are punished will also be rehabilitated and avoid further offending. Typically, the expectation is that rehabilitation will occur during a time of incarceration or alternatively, that having been sentenced will act as a deterrent for further offending. However, what is emphasised in Ben's story is the important role that the community plays in supporting desistance from crime and successful reintegration back into society. Desistance from crime is what we criminologists refer to as the process of going straight, where eventually an individual will no longer be involved in offending behaviour. It can be compared to other behavioural changes like giving up smoking, where some people will give up on the spot, but for others it might occur as a process over time with a few relapses along the way. Criminological research has found that desistance from crime is supported by a number of factors similar to those that Ben spoke about. First, desistance relies on the individual wanting to change and being motivated to do so. Having ambitions to achieve goals also helps, as well as the individual reforming the way that they see themselves and also having an incentive to change, like the benefit of significant others. These factors that support desistance from crime come from within the individual, but this is only part of the story here, as desistance also requires a number of other factors that are external to the individual. Research is very clear that the active participation of others is crucial for desistance from crime. Having a job, being married, military service, having children, pro-social networks and moving away from previous criminal networks are all factors associated with desistance from crime. Yet none of these can be achieved by the individual alone without the involvement of others. For instance, finding a job is not solely dependent upon the individual who has a criminal record being motivated to work. It also requires an employer who is willing to take a chance on that person and choosing to hire them. For these reasons, reintegration and desistance from crime is a two-way street that requires the desisting individual to be provided with opportunities to engage in a pro-social life. 
Perhaps you have never thought about the fact that you have an important role to play in helping former offenders to reintegrate back into society. Maybe you are in a position to provide some of these opportunities and contribute in meaningful ways to help reduce reoffending. Perhaps you are an employer who could give someone a second chance or part of a community group that could provide opportunities for inclusion. I encourage you today to think about what part you might be able to play in helping someone reintegrate and support their desistance from crime. You heard Ben talk about the wide range of benefits to the community. Everybody wins, and who doesn't want to be a part of that? In the next episode of I Am Not My Crime... Was there ever a time where you had to disclose your criminal record to an employer and tell them what you'd done in the past? I've told every one of them at my job interviews. How'd that go? Well, because I appreciate my honesty. Yeah, but when you think of something like murder, one of the most serious crimes, how did you tell that story for them to be okay with it? Thanks for listening to I Am Not My Crime from the University of Southern Queensland. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate and review. This will help others to discover I am not my crime. I'm Suzanne Reich, and thanks for listening. If this episode has brought up any issues and you need to talk to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Narcotics Anonymous on 1300 652 820.